the war, he became a professor of theoretical physics at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. In 1950, he joined the faculty of the California Institute of Technology and spent the remainder of his career there. He had a brief marriage in the early 50s that didn't work out. He married my mother, Gwyneth Howarth, in 1960. My brother Carl was born in 1962, and I was adopted in 1968. Though he remained forever ambivalent about it, his most public achievement came in 1965, when he won the Nobel Prize in Physics, sharing it with Julian Schwinger and Shinichiro Tomonaga for their independent work in quantum electrodynamics. In 1986, he was again in the public eye, this time working on the commission investigating the explosion of the Challenger space shuttle. He died in 1988, after a long battle with abdominal cancer. It is no surprise to any of us who loved him that his memorial service at Caltech was attended by thousands. Anticipating large crowds on that day, Caltech planned to hold the memorial service twice. Even with such forethought, the auditorium quickly reached capacity both times. He has been the subject of countless interviews, books, articles, a few stage plays, several documentaries, and one motion picture. He was sought after not only for his scientific achievements, but also for his outsized curiosity, his irrepressible love of puzzles, and his embrace of life at large. He was an adventurer who made a hobby of cracking safes while working on the atomic bomb, who played bongo drums for a San Francisco ballet, and who decided to learn to draw in his forties, and became remarkably good at it. As a result of the admiration people have felt for my father, a great many wonderful and interesting people, treasured friendships, and rare opportunities have come my way. But as with any privilege, being his heir comes with a significant responsibility. My brother and I find ourselves faced with a large demand for all things having to do with Richard P. Feynman, and we strive to balance that demand with maintaining his legacy in a conscientious manner. I hope that this book not only does justice to the spirit in which he worked, but also reveals more of the personality behind his many accomplishments. For all the Feynman anecdotes that have been bandied about over the years, it's the lesser-known ones that I believe are the most telling. The story of my parents' courtship, for one, says a great deal about his unusual approach. My mother was from England, and when she met my father, she was living in Switzerland, intending to travel around the world working as an au pair. Richard promptly invited her to come to America to work as his maid. She told him she would think about it. He met her again the next day, and fearing that a 24-year-old woman would be put off by such an idea coming from a 40-year-old man, apologized for his impertinent suggestion. But she accepted. Many months later and with one of my father's future collaborators on the Feynman Lectures on Physics, Matt Sands, as the necessary immigration sponsor, the government was naturally suspicious of single men importing women, my mother moved in. Prior to her arrival, my father had written to her, saying, I'm managing poorly without you. Come quick. Upon her arrival, my mother cooked, cleaned, and once she obtained her driver's license, even drove him to Caltech while he sat in the back seat. Though they were friendly, there was as yet no romance. Both were dating other people. A light bulb had gone off in my father's head, however, the day he took her to pick up a study manual for the driver's test. 
They found themselves in the wrong line, and Gwyneth ended up taking the test with no preparation. Impressively, she passed. He realized soon after that he was falling in love with her and that he wanted to propose. Then he faulted himself for being too impulsive. He proceeded to mark a day on the calendar a few months ahead and thought, if I still feel the same way then, I'll ask her. The night before that day arrived, he couldn't stand the wait and kept her up until midnight. They were married a few months later. The household I grew up in was similarly unusual. We played many games. On camping trips, we would go to great lengths to put ourselves in the middle of nowhere. At every fork in the road, we took the road in the worst condition, the one that looked the most interesting to us. On Sunday mornings, my father would often forego reading the newspaper in favor of a wild hour of loud, often discordant music, drumming, and storytelling with my brother and me. When it was his turn to drive the carpool to elementary school, he would pretend to get lost or start to drive himself to work at Caltech. No, not that way, the kids would scream. Oh, all right. Is it this way? And he would turn the wrong way again. No, we would yell in utter panic, convinced we were going to be late. We always arrived, just in the nick of time, of course. Of my father's many skills, this willingness to play the fool and to let me think he could be completely outfoxed by my clever thinking, was the one that shaped my childhood more than any other. I was simply unaware for many years that he was revered as a supreme intellect. In fact, he encouraged a certain amount of irreverence toward himself. Most of the stories he told us were ones that highlighted his ineptitude. Our dinner conversations were full of animated stories about mistakes he made during the day, losing his sweater, forgetting something terribly important, having complete conversations with people and not remembering their names. He would talk about his experiences away from home as well, as in the time he was so disgusted with the fancy hotel hosting a conference he was attending that he took his suitcase and slept outside in the woods. Oh, Richard, was the invariable refrain from my mother's end of the table. Yet he always laughed at himself and so we laughed along with him. This is the key, in my mind, to his success as a teacher. Never condescending when he explained things, he had a knack for breaking problems down to a small, comprehensible scale. Okay, say the earth is this apple, he would begin, holding one up to illustrate his point. The simplicity of his illustrations brought the theretofore incomprehensible down to a level more readily grasped. In the early 1960s, his love of teaching and sense of civic duty led him to the California Curriculum Commission, where he devoted countless hours to evaluating math textbooks for elementary school students. Being awarded the Ersted Medal in 1972 for his contributions to the teaching of physics gave him tremendous satisfaction. Ten years later, the Associated Students of Caltech presented him with an award for excellence in teaching, to which he responded, I was very pleased to be honored for doing something I so thoroughly enjoy. He was a staunch believer in public education, but invariably had his frustrations with the bureaucracy and its inflexible thinking. When I was in high school, he started showing me shortcuts in my math homework that diverged from the teacher's methods. 
I was subsequently scolded by my Algebra 2 teacher for not solving the problem in the right way. My father found this ridiculous, as I had nonetheless arrived at the correct answer, and he dropped by the school to discuss the matter. The teacher didn't know who he was, and treated him as a bumbling idiot trying to make his life more difficult. The teacher finally accused him of knowing nothing about math. My father, biting his tongue the whole time, finally couldn't stand it any longer and spoke his mind. The next day, I was transferred to another class. The next year, solving problems without using the prescribed methods yielded similar results, and so I ended up studying the material at home with my father and taking the exams at school. These memories and more came flooding back not too long ago. I remember reading a few of my father's letters in 1990, shortly after my mother's death. One that particularly struck me was a letter to a former secretary, in which he lamented that he was not a grandfather yet, that his kids were slow. I figured out I was in high school, in 11th grade, when he wrote that. As I laughed, it occurred to me that his letters might make for interesting reading one day. It would take 14 years, but in May of 2004, I started doing just that, when copies of the Feynman papers from the Caltech archives were shipped out to me. Twelve filing cabinet drawers and thousands of sheets of paper took quite a while to go through. Most were technical in nature, notes for lectures and classes, correspondence with colleagues regarding developments in physics, attending conferences, and so forth. About a third of the documents were non-technical, and almost all of those...